Super Scoreboard, the old firm through the decades. This is Super Scoreboard, the old firm through the decades. I'm Hugh Keevans. Some call it the greatest derby in the world. It is certainly the game that divides a country. When Celtic play Rangers, Scotland holds its breath. The 60s started with Rangers the dominant force and ended with a seismic shift in power. Jim Craig and Colin Steen remember the time well and they will join me shortly to offer the memories that will bring the decade back to life. Jim is alternatively known as a Lisbon Lion, the winner of seven league titles, four Scottish Cups, three League Cups, as well as being a member of the first British side to win the European Cup. Colin was the first £100,000 transfer between two Scottish clubs and scored 64 goals in 128 appearances for Rangers, exactly one every two games. He too won a European trophy for Rangers in the 1970s, but we want to go back even further in time. Jim Craig, can I start with you? To what extent did the 60s alter the way people approached Scottish football in terms of tactics and the way we went about our business? Well, the game had changed in the late 50s from uh, the 2-3-5 formation. And funny enough, when you hear a team ride out, it's still sometimes ride out in 2-3-5, yeah. like Simpson, Craig and Gemmell, Murdoch, McNeil and Clark, you know, yeah. whereas it was four at the back in actual fight, you know. But... Um, the uh, the Brazilians brought in the 424 1958, and that changed everything because that, that became the kind of popular uh, way of playing. And the Scottish teams latched onto it. Dundee, first of all, in the early 60s, did very well in Europe, reached the semi final of the European Cup. And uh, the Fairland under Jockstein as well did pretty well. Yeah. Colin, I remember as a young boy watching Real Madrid play Eintracht in the European Cup final at Hamden. And for me, I think people looked at that game and thought, we play a version of that game. Let's try and play like them. Was that your impression of the time, Colin? Well, I think it was one of the, the great games in football. Um, Eintracht scored first. Actually, the guy's name was Steen. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he got Real Madrid uh, a bit angered. And they're an absolutely tremendous team. And they beat everybody in Europe, the best team in the world by far. It's a great uh, exhibit for um, football then. I mean, in the 1960s, Colin, Celtic and Rangers got to European finals. Uh, Celtic won theirs, and unfortunately for Rangers, they, they, they lost theirs. But Rangers were getting to a European final, but didn't even win their domestic league. Does that tell us about the quality overall of the, the major division in Scotland then? Well, I think maybe the quality was Celtic. <laughs> Celtic were a far more um, team than one every week. They're more consistent than the Rangers. Although Rangers were, uh, you know, could do it in the night. But I think you're talking about the early 60s, it was uh, Jim Baxter that uh, dominated these games. Oh. And I think when Jim left, uh, Celtic sort of took over. Because uh, from 60 to 64, Rangers did dominate Celtic and Jim Baxter was the eternal thorn in the flesh for Celtic, wasn't he? He certainly was, yes. I, uh, I don't know how many games he lost against Celtic, but it wasn't many. I think he domin- domin- dominated, the, dominated the games. Yeah. Uh, firm games in. Jim, at Celtic Park, Jimmy McGrory would be the manager 60-64. to 64. Uh, 
How different was life as a footballer then uh, Under a man like Jimmy McGrory Would it be regarded that the training and so forth As being almost primitive compared to what's going on today? Yeah, I mean he was a lovely man, Jimmy McGrory But he was not cut out for managerial ship um, I came in at the end of his reign I signed in January 65, Jock arrived in March 65, so I never really played a game under Jimmy McGrory. But from what the boys tell me, he would stand with a pipe, and as they went out, he would say, it's a grand day for a game, boys, go and show them what you can do. Yeah. And that was the limit of the team, the, the pre-match team talk. And it was very kind of, you know, a lot of teams played that same way. The players were just expected to work it out themselves and... and uh, uh, not so much work out the tactics, but just play the same way week in and week out and uh, make sure that you put pressure on the opposition and that was all you were expected to do. Was it really the case that players basically just lapped the track and that was training? Well, when I first went there for training at night time, I'd been playing at university and the guys who were taking the coaches, uh, taking the coaching were uh, qualified in uh, physical education. So it was quite good stuff and there were time runs and all the rest of it. And then when I get to Celtic Park, all we did was a bit of lapping and the only lights were underneath the main stand. So we ran quite quickly down the street and then as we went behind the bend, we slowed down because nobody could see you. <laughs> and we slowed right down the back street and then we speeded up again, coming back into in front of the stand. And it was just, you know, a nonsense the way it was put about. Colin, your early part of the decade was spent at, uh, at Hibs, of course, well, what was a yeah. life like then for the professional footballer at Hibs? Well, certainly, as Jim says, there wasn't even any tactics coming in. But, uh, we were very thoroughly trained by a guy called Tom McNiven, who also trained uh, Scotland for a while, I think under uh, Jockstein or whatever. Uh, and he was very thorough in his warm-ups, uh, which everybody appreciated. But tactically, well, there wasn't any tactics, no. Did you actually enjoy it, playing off the cuff like that? I certainly did, yes. Aye. Well, you're young and you're fearless. You know, you just go on with it, don't you? Yeah. Jim, Jockstein would be seen as a, a revolutionary, I suppose. I mean, when you first started to work with him, were you taken aback by his methods? Well, not really, because uh, the, the short time I played for the university team, I realised that there was a way of playing football. There was more than just one way of playing football because the coaches would try different things at that time. I interviewed Jockstein uh, many years later towards the end of his, his uh, life, unfortunately, and um, he said that the game you mentioned, Colin, was the game that really impressed him because he went along to see Di Stefano because everybody was talking about Di Stefano. Mm. But what he realised on the night was that with the exception of the centre-half, Jesus Santa Maria, who was an out-and-out stopper, all the other players got involved in the play. And when and he decided then that when he took over a team, he wanted all the outfield players, with the exception of the central defenders, to take part in the play. Oh. So when he arrived at Celtic Park, he had Tam and myself who liked to come forward. He had midfield players and he had strikers. And the whole thing kind of fell into place for him. Oh. He would be described as the man who invented the modern-day Celtic, would that be fair? Yes, he revolutionised the way everything was done. And, um, I mean, we found new training facilities, new training grounds, 
the kit that you were given was never very good, but it was a wee bit better than it was before. You know, you only wore the socks maybe three days running rather than <laughs> changing them every day. You know, <laughs> I'm sure you remember those days, Colin, as well. To be quite honest. Same boat, Jim. <laughs> how how was it for you in, in that regard, Colin, at the, at Easter Road? Well, it was the same sort of thing, you know. You, I, I don't remember changing the, any training gear during the week, so I think you go out every day and just go on with it. I mean, Jim, people are always flippant about it, but you were regarded as the intellectual of the team because you'd been to uni. Uh, you know, but it was a working class game for you and for uh, Colin in that particular era. Yeah, well, I'm. I'm you know the sunny of miner and uh, you know the miners were uh, you know all the villages and that so uh, you know I just was lucky to be the right place at the right time uh, in a junior game at Easter Road and I scored a hat trick and I got signed the next day with, with Bob Shankly. Scoring hat tricks became right. your speciality, of course, because you went to Rangers and scored hat tricks in your first two games. That's right, yeah. Uh, it was nice to get the supporters in there, uh, you know, chant your name on that after two games. It was absolutely, you know, electric, you know, atmosphere, things like that. Jim, it was a time of colourful characters. Uh, for your part, uh, there was Jimmy Johnson, Bobby Murdoch, Bertie Ald, Bobby Lennox. The what you're saying is I was lucky to get a word down Edgeways, is well, that what you're saying? Probably, yeah. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> they'd be known. They'd be known today as rascals, wouldn't they? Well, there was a certain amount of flexibility from Jock because he realised that you can't keep them players on a leash all the time. So, I mean, if he said, you know, what, we were on a, a, a tour somewhere, he said you could go out to midnight. That was no problem. You know, you, you just came in at twelve o'clock, and what you did was up to yourself. You know, yeah. and. Uh, I think managers have got to be very flexible in the way they deal with players. They're dealing with human beings yeah. who have lifestyles and there's no point in, in being too strict with them because that just builds up a wee bit of antagonism on the player side. So I think a bit of come and go is, is, is the right way to do it. Although Jock was a strict disciplinarian, was he not? Oh yes, I mean I, I'm, I'm not for one minute doubting that or, or decrying that, but he he would allow you a spell uh, off the leash if you were on tour or something like that at all, and, and um, you know that that player's very grateful for that. Colin, how would you describe the Rangers managers that you worked under? Were they strict disciplinarians? Well, I think uh, Waddle was the, the strictest, but uh, as Jim said, I mean uh, they would give you a bit of leeway as long as you you didn't abuse it, uh, which you know. Obviously, you've got to communicate between manager and player. So, if he would let you out, no, it's fine. But uh, you know, he did what you're told. As a very young reporter, I made the error of calling Mister Waddle Willie, and uh, <laughs> he, he, he tore it. He, he tore a strip off me there and then, Colin. Let me tell you. Yeah, Beryl, you call Mister Waddle, and the, the glass got back. Then you were in trouble. And Jim, the first piece of advice I was given as a very young reporter was not to ask Jockstein a question unless I was absolutely certain it was a sensible one. Yeah, that's right. Um, but in actual fact, I thought his dealings with the press, I thought he was very good mm. because um, I don't know how you felt about that being on the, the recipient 
side of things, but when I watched some of his press conferences, I thought he was um, very good at uh, taking a lot of questions that he might not necessarily have wanted to answer. Yeah. And um, I'd much admired him for that. There was a native cunning there. You know, he knew if Celtic had a bad result, he had a good story tucked up his sleeve to take away from the bad result and have people talk about something else. That's true. They're right, yeah. He was a clever man. Do you remember your first old firm game, Colin? Do you remember the score? Do you remember the day? I can mind my, my first game at Ibrox. It was for Habs against Rangers. Uh-huh. And I got sent off. Huh. Sent off at Ferguson. Remember him? Oh, so that was my first my first time at My whole firm, though, I can't really, you know, mind the, the first one. Did you deliberately? Did you deliberately run into one of Fergie's elbows? I did. I certainly did. I and he ran into one of my fists. So <laughs> both of us got sent off. And, uh, it was old enclosure then. And uh, I went up the enclosure and uh, there were a few Rangers supporters uh, questioning my parentage. So. <laughs> you played in the 1969 Scottish Cup final four Rangers against Celtic and Fergie, I think that was his last ever game for Rangers because he made a mistake early on in the match and he was never forgiven for it. Yeah, well, I was suspended at the time, so I was supposed to be playing. Uh-huh. But Fergie came in my place and he was told by Mr Waddle to mark Billy McNeil at corners. So Bertie all got the ball, they got a corner, and who was wandering over to match somebody was Fergie. So overcome the ball, right to Bill O'Neill said, one nothing. So that was Fergie's last game, I believe. Well, Jim, they certainly took defeat very badly in those days, you know. That the, Do you remember your first Celtic and Rangers game? Well, mine was a very memorable one because it was a 5-1 victory, you know. <laughs> you, oh. tend, you, tend to, you tend to remember them, you know. And it was in the second or third of January, nineteen sixty-six, at Celtic Park. Right. And, um, so that was one you remember. Colin, my uh, my old firm record, I know off the top of my head, right? I played in fourteen of the contests. Uh-huh. And, uh And the one in losing, but is not important. The crowds are the important, but the smallest attendance was sixty-five thousand for that five-one game. That was at Celtic Park. The biggest attendance was 129,870 for that 69 Cup final. Yeah. And the collective attendance for 14 matches was 1,400,000 people. It's quite incredible when you think about it, you know. And most of the people there couldn't reach a toilet. <laughs> and yet... Was it better in the good old days or do you still get the same thrill out of the Celtic Rangers match now? Ah, yeah, certainly. I think the the atmosphere's uh, second to none and I'm going to find it very difficult and I think the players will. They play with the crowds aren't back. The crowds there, I think it'd be unbelievable because the crowds were absolutely fantastic. You know, half the part was covered with Celtic supporters and half with, you know, Rangers. And you're talking about maybe 70,000, 80,000 then. Fantastic atmosphere. I mean, Colin, you're talking about you being the son of a miner and, uh, you know, you, you've had a, an upbringing that would have been tough at times. But did you actually feel nervous going into the, the game against Celtic wearing Rangers jersey? Oh, well, I, th- I think if you said you were nervous, 
you'd be telling lies. I mean, everybody's got a different approach to games. But I think, you know, the adrenaline's flowing that. You've got to be nervous. Once you go out in the park and that, you know, settled in, it's all right. But before the game, you know, you hear the crowds. It's oh, phenomenal. It's tremendous. Jim, you were a Glaswegian, so I, I assume you were brought up in it all. And uh, how did that affect your entry into the old firm world? Well, curious enough, my father uh, was from from Leith and was a hippie. Ah. And uh, but my grandfather and all that kind of thing and uncles were all Celtic fans. So they were kind of divided family there, you know. But um, no, it was just a tremendous occasion. The atmosphere was unbelievable for about four days, four or five days beforehand. Everybody you met in the street would say to you, they make sure you beat this mob when you get out there on Saturday, you know. So no pressure then, you know. And uh, when you walk down the tunnel, I'm sure you'll remember as well, Colin, just the noise level just rose and rose and rose and it was absolutely unbelievable for the time you get out on the pitch. Okay. Really fantastic occasion. Can you hear anything when there are over 100,000 people there? Well, if you make a mistake, then you can hear everybody in the stadium. <laughs> <laughs> or if you miss an open goal, dare I say to God. <laughs> well, the, 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 the game that you talk about, Jim, Davy Wilson scored for Rangers after two minutes, and then Celtic scored that's five right. in reply. So that's yeah. the unpredictability of the fixture. Well, that was it. And David was always a very good opponent, a very talented player, David Wilson. And uh, the thing was in those days, it's different from nowadays, fullbacks nowadays have really no players against them. There's no test for them. They can come forward at will. And I, my own belief is that that's why defences are a bit suspect because they don't have to be back to help the centre-halves in covering. They can afford to come forward because there's nobody against them. Whereas I had... David Wilson, first of all, then Willie Johnston, and then Orion Person. You know, oh. you know, three duffers. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you know. Colin, you you were coming up that against was... Billy McNeil, uh, who outstanding player of that time. Did did you look forward to those jousts? Uh, no, really, no. <laughs> uh, but. You know, Billy was a good centre half and, you know, a sort of galosis for Celtic. And I played with, uh, a few times with Scotland as well. You know, he's a great guy and that. But he was very, very hard to play against. And as Jim says, you know, the, the, the modern day fullbacks, it's not the same game as Jim played then. What was the banter like in the tunnel before the teams came out? You know, there's a famous story that Bertie Ald was asking about bonus money and. Uh, it turned out Rangers were getting more bonus money, but he said, "Oh, but ours is guaranteed." You know, did that was there a lot, was there a lot of that going on at the time, Colin? Well, I, I heard that story for David Wilson actually. Uh, you know, they were getting a bit of banter. Bertie says, "Well, I'm certain to get the bonus anyway." So, <laughs> I heard that story. What, what, no, did... but it would also be fair to say, Colin, that it's a very tense occasion at that particular time. You know, oh, uh, yeah. the laughs are few and far between. You've spent a week. Beforehand, but like with everybody you meet, you know, telling you that you must win this game, you've had a chat from the manager beforehand. Um, uh, you're up for it. You're really up for it. One more than more than one way. You're up for it. You know, mentally, you're up for it physically, and emotionally as well. So, are you saying, Jim, that there was really not much room at all for humour, or it was too no, serious? The humour in those occasions was few and far between. 
you know, and that story has been told so many times, you know, it's beginning to get a tail, you know. <laughs> and, you know, and it's probably an example of how few stories there are at that time. I don't know how you felt before a game like that, Colin, but I didn't get too uptight before many games, but I could uptight before that one. And you, Colin? Well, I, think, I think you say it as well, Jim. The build-up to the game, I don't know how the build-up is, is now, but it certainly was, it went three or four days before the game. And as Jim says, well, you've got to beat this team and, uh, and whatever. It's the same for Celtic and Rangers players. But the build-up to it was... Uh, well, it wasn't great, you know, your, your nerves and that, but uh, certainly that was the talk that you had to beat, you know, Celtic or you had to beat Rangers there. Colin, what was it like then when you when you lost an old firm game? What was the aftermath like for you individually? Well, it was the end of the world, wasn't it? Uh, it wasn't very nice to, to beat with Celtic, obviously. Uh, always nice to win, but it was hard to take to, uh, when you got beat. And, uh, Beat quite a few times, Jim. Would you take it badly if Celtic lost to Rangers? Oh, sure, of course. Yeah, I mean, I, I lost in a Scottish Cup final, '66 uh, oh. uh, replay, and um, you know, a, a very bad night. But I was going to say there that the one aspect of this that has changed dramatically is, and it's thanks to modern inventions like social media and stuff like that. And uh, we now realise how much this game means to fans in America, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, which we heard about before, but didn't hear, didn't see too much of. Now yeah. you get messages in all the time from these people in these countries. Yeah. And uh, uh, believe you me, I was in New Zealand just at Christmas time there, and I attended a couple of functions at Celtic uh, dues and. The atmosphere for an old firm match in there is quite unbelievable. Oh. And they're 12,000 miles away from where the game's been played. Yeah. You know? Does it mean almost too much? Is it a healthy rivalry? Um, I don't think it's unhealthy. I think it can get over the top sometimes. Social media has been bad for this particular game and this relationship because the nutters tend to dominate it. And uh, the people who are making the comments, you know, and uh, it's not just sarcastic comments, but downright objectionable comments. Mm. And they're the ones that are making the, the, this game even more of a problem than it ever was. In the tense times in which both of you lived where Celtic Rangers or Rangers Celtic games were concerned, people speak about the men who are good to have with you in the trenches. Colin, who did you look to at Rangers when you were playing Celtic? Who would be the one that you'd take heart from looking at before the game, thinking we'll be all right if we get him? Well, I think the first name that comes to mind is John Gregg. He was, uh, you know, the captain of the team, uh, and you always looked up to him. He was the most solemn man and the man that you'd follow. The joker in the back was Wally Henderson. Aye. <laughs> Uh, but John Gregg, I mean, you don't get a statue of yourself outside Ibrooks for no good reason. I mean, he was Rangers in the 60s, was he not? Oh, he certainly was, aye. Uh, when Baxter uh, went left, uh, John was the main man. He certainly was. Uh, he was voted Rangers uh, player of uh, all time. So, mm. great char charisma about him, and he, he was a leader of men. What I always remember about John Gregg, in good times or bad, when Rangers were dominating Celtic or when Celtic were dominating Rangers, John Gregg gave 100% to 
every time out. Oh, certainly, he never one hundred and ten percent. He never, he never flinched at anything. Even uh, if he was getting beat, he'd still do the same job. Yeah, on the subject of statues, Jim, there's a statue of Billy McNeil outside the ground at Celtic Park, and you don't get that for nothing either. No, indeed, Billy was always a great presence. He, he wasn't a great shouter or anything like that at all. It was more a kind of he just did his job and encouraged you more than anything else, you know. Whereas uh, Murdoch and all tended to control the play on the park. Um, Think he would be the guy that would just suddenly light the game up with a touch of genius that nobody else could do. He didn't know how he did it himself, so there was no point in asking him. Uh, and, um, you know, we had defenders who could defend, we had midfield players who could control the game, and we had forwards who could score goals. I mean, you've got that, plus a good goalkeeper as well. Um, it makes you a difficult team to beat. How difficult or easy was it, Jim, to have... Uh a social relationship with a Rangers player and I'll ask Colin about his relationship with any Celtic players later I mean Paddy Clarend no bigger Celtic man than Paddy Clarend very very friendly yeah. with Jim Baxter yeah well I've never had any problem with any Rangers player before I left Bears then to live out in the country here just <laughs> now I um, I was uh, a neighbour of uh, Alex Ray and um, nice fella and they got on very well with him and I've always said that <laughs> in fact so you'll find this bit strange, Colin, because when I started playing for Celtic, you know, the, the Catholic Protestant bit was at its height. Well, before I left St Andrews and Bears then, Master of Sunday, Lorenzo Amoruso would be sitting over there, Sergio Rofferini would be sitting there, and Marco Negri would be sitting there. <laughs> uh, you never thought of that. <laughs> and, the, and the pass keeper, who was a convert to Catholicism, used to say to me, he said, Jim, I heard that we're building a little chapel just halfway down the tunnel so the boys can nip in before the game starts. <laughs> it, it, it certainly was a, a, an aspect of life in those days and it's undeniable. Uh, Colin, you'd come into it from the east of Scotland. Were you slightly taken aback by that side of the game? Well, just a bit. I, I wasn't really involved in that side of the game, but... Um... You certainly learned it when you went to when I went to Ibrox anyway. Next time on Super Scoreboard, the old firm through the decades.